0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. This is uh, we are, this is Invaluable, Achieving Clarity on Value. And we are going to be diving into Chapter 5, The Habit, That Thing You Do. Uh, first of all, I want to start off with a little bit of poetry in the beginning. It says, Look, they said, at your stubborn habit that refuses to die. Little did they know, but this was your superpower waiting for context. Um, I wanted to read that because I think that's a wonderful summary of sorts of what we're really going to dive into. Um, uh, so really we're getting into habits. So we're going out of the heart a little bit. We're getting into habits. And usually when I think of the word habit, there's usually a, a negative connotation to it. Um, does that seem to be the general uh feeling that you have gotten when it comes to the word habit
1: yeah the word habit is a really interesting one we hear a lot of psychological literature and self-help literature and monastic literature around understanding our conditioning and becoming really aware that our conditioning shapes our life and in service of changing that conditioning if we can. So that's all very valid viewpoints. And I think it's worthwhile for people to understand what they can change about their conditioning. That said, that's not what this chapter is about. This chapter is looking at that deepest conditioning that we cannot even trace. We, We can't find which life experience caused that conditioning to happen. It's just the oldest habit that we have, we show up and this shows up. It's it's almost like, why is the rose red? And what if the rose were to shed that conditioning of being red, can it do it? I don't think so. So <laughs> at least <laughs> maybe other people can genetically modify roses, but in, in so far as what we call natural, that's what habit is about. And, and later on, you'll see habit is uh, also described in the book as you know the nun's habit or the monk's habit. That is a very old word in middle English where the word habit is almost like a second skin. It's the costume you wear by which you are known and it's not its it's it seen as so natural it's not something you can actually even take off. it's it's a second skin really. So we're trying to discover what is your second skin. You show up, and this
0: shows up. It also adds like a different context to the word habit that I I bet a lot of people have not thought of before. Um, And it really makes you evaluate yourself and to think about how, uh, going back to previous chapters, how you really have everything you need to be able to evaluate um, your values and what you may need out of life. Um. And so, diving into the chapter, I was very uh, interested in the the story of Durga. Um, and uh, although although I won't I won't go into the entire story, what I found very interesting was it talked about a pattern of several Indian myths. So, going at the bottom of page one fifty seven, it says the details, like say, of this story are different um, in stories like it. But the essence is always the same. There is a seeker who has obtained a valuable superpower. Instead of seeing the opportunity to deploy the superpower in service of their heart value and connect with all of life, the seeker has gotten attached to a misplaced sense of self-preservation. Using the distinctions we have seen so far, they have arrived at a very limited or systemic view of who they are and this limited view is what they are engaged in preserving. They think they are being smart, but in every single instance, they end up getting outsmarted. This humorous template is what almost every single Indian mytholo- mythological story is molded on. Um, and that's <laughs> it, it's very interesting because it, getting into the topic of habits, um, to me, it almost served as like... You, there are certain traits or certain things that you do that you really can't escape. Um, but instead of thinking of it almost as chains, you should start thinking of it almost as patterns that you can use to, Im- you know, improve upon yourself and really enhance what you already have. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about the? the indian mythological stories that that have this kind of lesson
1: yes there are many uh, indian mythological stories which have this pattern and there're so many uh, i i can think of at least uh, a couple others so for instance a demon who felt he he was really smart and said oh i don't want to be killed in the air or on the ground so he was killed on the lap of somebody or I, i don't want to be killed by man beast or god so he was killed by half man half beast so and and in this particular story you know as you as you read the demon felt very confident that if he had protection from man be man beast and god he'd be okay and in this case he forgot about women so so that humor is is very evident in in pretty much every story and and the moral of the story is if you think you're really smart, you can bet that there's somebody smarter in the room. And at some point, your mind will get outsmarted, and and so it, it behooves us to think about our powers. Like habits, you know, the word habit is is reinterpreted here in this book as power. What is your power? So when you when you have a lot of physical strength, how did you get that strength? Well, I'll bet you had an exercise regimen you build some habits, right? Of continuously exercising in, in a regular fashion, hopefully in a safe fashion. And, and now you have some powers that you can deploy, but you could use those powers to hurt people and you could use it to help people. And, and that's the thing that that differentiates us. And there's just a tiny difference between what mythologically is a demon versus a hero. And, and that's what this is about that, hey, Can we start by identifying what is our superpower? If we can find that, it's such a unique thing that most other people we see don't seem to have it. Can we identify it? How do we identify it? And if we can identify it, the work that we've done in the last chapter will be really helpful because then we can say, how do we deploy this superpower in service of our heart value and use it constructively? That's what this conversation is about.
0: Mm, and it, may, <clears throat> it makes it so much easier, uh, like you were saying, for helping your heart value, for really getting everything together. Um, on 159, you say, At its root, I see the superpowers, or amoral abilities, as deep and unique habit patterns. Since habits are tied to action, these are extrinsic values. And since unique extrinsic values are connected to who we are, they acquire a numinosity. Going a little bit more down... When the habit value is channeled properly, they become our superpower. However, they can just as easily become our liability when not channeled properly. They are our biggest blessing and our biggest curse at the exact same time. Um, yeah, and and it's like um, one thing I think about is uh, discipline. Um, discipline, in a way, becomes a habit uh, when channeled properly. Um, I think of that phrase: uh, "Pick one." The uh, discipline, um, or regret. And I think about those people that they want to achieve something, but they may not have the discipline to do it. But as they work on it, little by little, essentially adding a brick to the wall, uh, step-by-step, step, they eventually form a habit and that habit becomes something powerful. Um, and again, like, like you were saying just then those, habits could also be a bad thing if you're, I don't know, always chewing on your fingernails or something like that. And, you know, um, you know, you might like warp the fingernails or the way that they, the the fingernails grow back, things of that nature. But really people need to evaluate, like you were saying, what they already have and we can build upon that. Um,
1: Yeah. And and this isn't just the, uh, you know, that's a good example, actually, chewing of fingernails, it's probably out of stress at some point. But then there are certain habits that are even deeper, that you cannot identify or connect to a particular stressor or something specific that your mind is able to comprehend. And those are the deep habits we want to get to the deepest ones. That's, uh, That's just something I want to keep emphasizing.
0: And that's good that you do that's good that you are um because even for myself um you know everyone ha- I have this different view of what habits are and everything, and you're you're basically like, let's take it deeper, let's take it deeper than the surface uh value that people usually placed upon it um on page one sixty on the aphorism five point o five point one it says the nun has her habit, warriors have theirs what habit do people see when they see you? Then it says, the habit value is something you cannot control. It is not a decision decision for you to engage in this habit. Rather, it is the exact opposite. It takes a lot of work to stop yourself from engaging in this. And even if you succeed, it feels very unnatural and stifling. So if we're talking about deeper habits, then would an example be something like, um, let's say someone mm, brought like, like, okay, so say like someone's like a very compassionate person, but let's say overly so. Like they, they sacrifice at the expense of their well-being sometimes. Um, Even though they don't like it, they're, they're very passive. They don't like confrontation. They just continue to give. And someone asks them for money, they give the money, and then they continue to go to that person. Would that be an example of the kind of deeper habit that you are speaking of?
1: So what classifies it as a habit is whether they struggled to make those decisions. So, if you go to the same person and every time you asked, they had to evaluate their situation and very consciously they decided to help. That would not be habit. that would be a, you know perhaps the heart value, I do not know. but habit would be it's it's an unconscious or subconscious re- reflex. It's like it's not a decision. so so a similar example would be, and there was somebody I was mapping, and this person had a habit of conflict avoidance. So on the outside, this person would look really nice and sweet. Anytime anything happened, but really, what this person was doing was avoiding conflict, and they would take uh, very predictable steps. When and 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 this could become a liability when you know in life everything is not a bed of roses, and you sometimes have to challenge people in in certain situations and this would take the life out of this person it was very hard so and and so you flip it around said okay what is this person's habit about it's really about seeking harmony this person is always seeking harmony maybe you know it's it's not something that this person tries to work towards it's just a reflex action so that now could that be a superpower we'd have to explore some more But that's the kind of distinction you're making here.
0: That's excellent. Um, And so, yeah, it says the habit value requires no struggle at all. You show up and this shows up. And so you say that just like you did for the heart value, I suggest journaling in a reflective space as you engage in this inquiry. Um, And then you have a bunch of questions, which I will read uh, that people can use to explore this. Uh, number one, what shows up when you show up? Number two, what is a habit pattern people have noticed about you since you were a child? Number three, what is something you have not been able to stop doing even when people have asked you to? Number four, what is an orientation that you bring to every project you do? Number five, what habit habit pattern have you known to be a great blessing and a great curse at the same time? Number six, can you validate your deepest habit pattern by explaining how it has shown up in every major decision of your life? These are These are great questions because it's really getting into the, getting really deep into who you are. The one that I mean they're all good but the one that really stood out to me was number 2. Uh, what is a habit pattern people have noticed about you since you were a child? It's almost like it's almost like the nature versus nurture kind of thing. Like th- mm. this is something that has been just a part of you regardless of uh what your parents tried to instill in you. Regardless of what your environment tried to instill in you. It's like it's like when people have said, Oh, 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 this person has always done X. Like they've always mm. done X. Perhaps there's something there. Um What what do you think about that?
1: That's a good one, yeah. If you can remember, if you're lucky enough to have received that kind of feedback growing up, that's that's kind of what we're looking for. That's very deep, very old habit.
0: Mm. Yeah, that that yeah that really stood out to me um, and then you get into the principles of this um, for principle number one it's not a decision <laughs> which we kind of we, we kind of explored a little bit um, and then we we started talking about um, your friend Jane. I would love for you to explain a little bit more about Jane when she's talking about we didn't we didn't really explore Jane in the um, other chapter or the other podcast episode that much but she becomes a lot more prominent here um, talking about how she reacts to economics um, and numbers. Um, Can you uh, just for our listening audience uh, explain a little bit about Jane?
1: Yeah. So Jane's heart value was around simplifying the sacred. And we did a lot of uh, iterations in the previous chapter to find that and the here here we're focusing on what is what is her deepest habit value that she just just cannot do without like this is just she shows up and this shows up and what i found was initially she she said it was about finding meaning in numbers and after we dug deeper like really is it finding meaning in numbers is it just numbers and then she said, No, it's a, it's actually more about connecting to meaning. And we dug some, you know, we dug a little bit deeper and then she she arrived at filter for authenticity. And she says something like, if there was any inauthenticity in the relationship, then it's a big blocker for her. She can't do the work with that person. Now this is this is a good one to look at because a lot of people will say things like this that oh I don't like inauthentic relationships and if they see something they will you know quote unquote cancel the other person out. Now this is a little bit problematic because uh, is it's a it's definitely judgmental and b you're always going to find people who are uh, not showing up as authentic. And what this is really saying is she has committed to not doing the work or be patient with other people to, to find their authenticity because if you dig deep enough, you always find it. So it's, and then the reason to, to, to really question this one is because it contradicts our heart value. Her heart value is around simplifying the sacred. So you you, you have to listen very deeply to other people in order to bring out their sacredness. And meanwhile, if you come in with that judgment that this person is not authentic, how are you gonna help them? You're not gonna be able to fulfill your heart value if your habit value is contradicting it. So so I started to look at it more as scar tissue from past life experiences, where she may have been in context that felt inauthentic to her. So we used these principles and said, let's dig deeper, let's dig deeper. And finally, she had a breakthrough. And she went back, you know. Surprise, surprise! To the time she was a kid, and she found that she was a kid who would prefer to be the shadows, working on the details, and didn't want lime the limelight. And that has been true for her her entire life. She's not the front of the room person. You give her some work; if she if she can stay in the back of the room and support you, she's the happiest. It's just you know it's just her makeup she she's not going to succeed in in contexts where front of the room work is required this is just her deepest nature for other people it's more like you have to overcome your fears you have to practice and all that stuff for her this is just such an old old habit that it's become a part of her nature details in the shadows and and the interesting thing is framing it as a habit is very empowering. It's like, oh, this is not something to look down upon. This is not something to say it has to be fixed. This is just there in the space and we're going to use it as a superpower. And let's see what, what that would mean. Of course, that story of the superpower, turning it, finding the right context is where we will we will move into the heart. That's the next chapter. But the thing that makes this valid is that details in the shadows for jane is both a blessing and a curse and there must be contexts where this has been very helpful to her life and also contexts where it has not been very helpful that's what makes it valid you need to have both stories for it
0: and i and, and i think like hearing about the story of jane um and really emphasizing how it's a blessing and a curse um so even even if a uh, it's an employer uh, listening to this podcast. It's very good for them to hear this because it's like, okay, I can hire someone like Jane and I can really emphasize her superpower and place her in conditions in which her superpower will, will thrive. However, there's also the curse aspect that I must be aware of. So now I must hire someone that will, you know, um, balance out her, her, for lack of a better word, that weakness. Um, I get weakness is not a good word, but like basically, um, the curse part of, of that superpower. And then eventually like form a team of people that I need in which they are all thriving, but yet at the same time, balance each other out so that, you know, there's not like a component of my company that I'm missing. Um. So yeah. So it's not. It's not just about um, even just uh, you being at work uh, as as a worker trying to find the value in your work, but also even from an employer aspect. I, I was thinking about that as well. Um. But yeah. We, we're uh, so. Also, it goes into principle two. It's our oldest and deepest skill. Uh, you can't easily tell when it started, and in fact, it is very hard for you to trace this skill to any cause. So, yeah, um, have you have you found uh, through your work that a lot of of these habits did have roots in childhood?
1: Uh, so I'm not a therapist, <laughs> and, <laughs> right? I, and I know, I know there are. Uh, there are certain branches of psychotherapy which trace everything to their childhood, so it's it's difficult to say, right? And and I would I take the position that it's it after beyond a point it's not that helpful to know exactly how this happened. But if if you come to a point, at least for the for this conversation, the values conversation, if you have arrived at a memory of a habit that you can't trace, that's good enough for now. And let's see what we can do with it. As long as it passes this test, that A, you can't trace it to a cause and B, it's not a decision for you. That's the key. It's just natural. If anything, the decision is not to allow this habit to express itself. That's really hard. That's what we wanna discover and, and see where that takes us.
0: So I guess when people have found their habit um and, and and it says on the bottom of 164 a good way to find your habit value is to ask what behavior pattern is front and center that is unexplained by the events of your life um after that you you kind of get some tests that really because you know someone might be like okay so i i think i think i know what what that habit is i think i know but and and, and and it seems as if it follows the principles that you have laid out, but then you have some tests to really see if it's validated. Um and test okay, number Can one... it
1: okay, before we go to the test, can I just mention since we talked a little bit about Jane, that in, in this second principle we talk about how you know since you since you brought it up about tracing it to the childhood, right? Mm-hmm how we found the habit value of details in the shadows for jane and there's this beautiful story of her uh, her mother asking her why she would not respond to teachers questions in the class even when she knew the answer Mm. and she would tell her mother i know the answer i don't need to show it off to anyone else and this is very strange right this is not something that she was taught to do she was the only one doing it in the class and parents wanted her to do the opposite right? That's a really good (laughs) test. There's something unique about this person here. And it's coming from somewhere who knows where, but it's there. That's the kind of uh, depth that we want to reach that hey, you that's the yardstick. It's there. Nobody can explain it. Nobody taught you this. And you just happen to be doing it for the longest time.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting because it, it, there was no even the, like especially since her parents wanted her to do the exact opposite. It's almost like we are trying to train you out of that in a way, and yet it still persists. It's still there. It, it it's it it's unexplainable um by the events of her life because you would think that eventually her parents would be like, okay, you know, make sure you, you volunteer again. Um, We're taking a look at your participation on your report card and (laughs) you need to Mm. participate more, Uh, you know, (laughs) and, and and perhaps, perhaps, you know, in order to please her parents a little bit, perhaps she participated more than she liked, but yet that habit still persists even in adulthood where it's like, okay, you know, I can, go outside of my comfort zone a little bit, I guess, to get the job done, but that is not who I am, or that is not, um, that is not what I would, uh, I would do at all if, if, if given the opportunity, um, that's great, that's great, um, And uh, yeah, even with that, you said in the context of the social conditioning of our classrooms, that is pretty, that is a pretty strange thing for a child to pull off against parental and classroom pressure. That is a habit pattern unexplained by any causal patterns that are accessible to Jane through normal recall. It is her oldest and deepest skill. Very interesting. Um, So yeah, getting, getting into the tests and, and it kind of uh, coincides with what you were just talking about with Jane. Uh, test number one, it gets you into trouble. <laughs> um, so with Jane, you know, because it is a blessing and a curse, even though she knows the answer, she's not following what her parents and possibly even her teachers want her to do. It gets her into a little bit of trouble. Um it says, with Jane's habit value of details in the shadow, she would find it very hard to thrive in environments where you are expected to make your presence felt loudly. Aphorism 5.4 says, a curse it is, your habit value. Yes, it is. So um, the thing that immediately stands out to me with talking about it gets you into trouble, um, even, but even though uh, test number one says it gets you in trouble, Test number two really balances it out by saying, but it is a superpower though. It says, you should be able to tell stories about times this habit value has been able to open doors for you like nothing else has. So it really balances it out. Um, um, This is a good test to try again with Jane's example, it says, for her first iteration of filtering for authenticity. She didn't have a good story for why this was a superpower. If anything, it was, a turn, it was turning her off from almost any work she wanted to take up and turning her off from herself. However, this is an important test to pass. The habit value must be both a blessing and a curse at the same time. Her final habit value of details in the shadows passes this test easily. And aphorism 5.5 says, a blessing it is, your habit value, yes, it is. It's almost like embrace the good with the bad. Um, (laughs) um, And then test number three says, it is a repeated pattern. So it's going to happen over and over and over um, because it is essentially a part of you. Um, And so... When going through these tests, is there, any, is there anything um, additional that you want to add upon these tests that the listener should know about?
1: Well, I think that hopefully the stories will help you ask the right questions. But these are important, especially test number three, that it is repeated. It's not a one-off. If it's a one-off, then you probably want to be a little bit skeptical about it. But it is so prevalent in your life that you should see it happen over and over again. That's the, that's the definition of a habit in a sense, right? That you can't turn it off anymore. So so that's what I would add.
0: Um, I know. It, <laughs> Aphorism 5.6 uh, on 168 says, You show up and this is seen. Your second skin. Um, I like the way that is put, especially because skin is something that you cannot... You can't take off of you, obviously. Um, I mean, it's something that, it, it, you know, it is seen. Uh, people notice it. Uh, you, you know, it's going to be something that is just a part of you. It, it's almost like a, like an organ. Um, it, you know, it's such an integral part of you that that is how deep uh, it seems as if the habits that you're talking about is. Um would that would that be an accurate description of sorts
1: yeah 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 it's a second skin right your your warrior's habit monk's habit nun's habit this is the second skin and it's a skin that is contextualized in your work uh work life you know it's, this is this is how people will know you
0: excellent yeah um an aphorism 5.7, 5.8 says, look outside and nothing makes you feel worthy enough. Meanwhile, the one who is worthy within is patiently awaiting your eyes of acceptance. And that's very interesting because it talks a little about a young Arab man named Abdul. Um, can you can you sum up the story of Abdul a little bit for our listening audience?
1: Yeah, so this was a very special mapping conversation. And What had happened was I was trying to find what his uh, heart value was. And it it turns out that we could trace uh, trace it to spaces of acceptance because he'd come from an immigrant family into an Arab country and they would always be made to feel like outsiders. And that really affected him. That was like, uh, there was a pain of rejection So creating spaces of acceptance was where he found meaning. But then we found that he had a very big superpower. And just naturally, he's the person who is a connector. You go into a room full of people, he's the person who will know exactly who you should be talking to, and he'll connect you to that person. And he he just can't stop it. That's just who he is. And so it's a very big synergy with his heart value. Like being a connector and creating spaces of acceptance just go so nicely hand in hand that he's able to help people feel more accepted by connecting with other people. So that was that was a very interesting thing. So don't look at the habit value in isolation. Look at the ground you've already covered with the heart value, if you have covered it. Sometimes of course we end up landing at the habit value first. People think it's their heart value, but then it fails the tests. And we find, oh, it's more like the habit. So that does happen sometimes. But in this case, we found the heart value and there was meaning there. And then we discovered the habit value of this person is a, is a true connector.
0: Um, bottom 169 says he just needed to view his life and work with new eyes. And that deepened his respect for who he was and what he brought to the world. This is one of the biggest miracles I've found in this work. Without changing a thing you do, you can access a new way of being with yourself. I really love this, too, because it seems that too often, um, whenever there is the curse aspect of our habits, um, it's almost looked at as a negative thing uh, in all aspects. And people are saying, um, you know, like, you need to change. You need to change who you are fundamentally. And sometimes that's not necessarily the case. It's almost like just looking through it through a new lens or, you know, accepting a part of you that others may not, you know, value it, but that is not their value. It's kind of like, it's kind yeah. of like Jane working in the shadows. I mean, like she might look at someone else. Um, you know, I, I don't know this for a fact, but people like Jane might someone might look at someone else who who's always raising their hand in the class and always giving the answer and might look at them like, I mean, they know the answer, but why do they feel the need to uh, kind of like show off or something? But it might not be showing off at all for that person, right. their 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 habit might lie in something else that has nothing to do with showing off.
1: That's beautiful. that's that's exactly it. Right? A person opposite to Jane is not problematic. It's just that they're different and they have a different superpower. and we just need to find the context for it. Yeah, right. That's and, beautiful. It, and, it
0: re- and it really goes back to um, previous chapters where it talks about um, not judging, um, you know, d- suspending our judgment um, in order to uh, help yourself do the work, help others do the work, Uh, We may think we know the answers to where someone is coming from and it may not be the case at all, especially when in a lot of cases we don't even know where our own habits and where our own (laughs) um, uh, certain traits are coming from. So if we don't even know where it is for ourselves, how can we judge someone else and claim to know where it's coming from for them? Yeah. But with that being said, uh, it really get, it really gets into a very important aspect of this chapter where it talks about where do problematic habits come from. Um, and so, you know, it says, when mapping the habit pattern, it is important to watch out for a pattern that we have seen in at least two examples so far. The first was Abdul's story, seeking recognition was a habit that had resulted from past trauma. We were able to detect that this was a habit value and not a heart value. Because it seemed like an uncontrolled reaction instead of something that inspired him to put in his life's effort.
1: Yeah, that's a that's actually a good one. So when you asked me about Abdul's story, I just went to the essence of it. But the challenge mm-hmm. of Abdul's story was he was looking to be recognized. And whenever somebody says, I want recognitions or promotions, I've seen other people in that situation as well. It, it's pointing you to... A systemic value recognition is are you recognized or are you not recognized it's a black and white distinction right it's not extrinsic it's not even definitely not numinous so that clued me into there's, there's something in here that i need to dig into why is this person wanting to be recognized some some deep trauma is there and then we found it in in terms of not being accepted in society and and then once we had cleared that out then we were able to enter into the space of connection as opposed to recognition connection is something he did naturally and that was the habit whereas rec- seeking recognition was the bad habit so that's the that's the place where there was no good story connected to that there was just heartbreak and that's the distinction the connection you know you you can see both good and bad out of it but if you are a connector in 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 places where you're organizing events you're creating community it's a strength but if you have to do deep, introspective work, <laughs> that's probably not your superpower that's going to interfere. So, so there's a certain kind of work that this person will excel in, very different from other kinds of people. So, so that's the key thing there. And so the, what, so the problematic habits section is really about getting to understand some traumatic thing that may have happened in the past that leads us uh, astray. And so this, this particular section talks about uh, a very important thing, that sometimes people don't have the right kind of guidance, and they make ethical mistakes. In the case of Jane here, the ethical mistake was to, to do something in a, on a test that she didn't want to do in retrospect, like cheating, basically. And, and that ethical, um, uh, should we say, malfunction had a pretty traumatic effect on her life where it turned her away from the field she was in for years and years and once she understood that she i have so much respect for this woman she had the courage to go back and say i'm going to go heal and i'll do it with honesty and with integrity and and get back into a relationship with that field that discipline
0: yeah, that, I was actually going to ask you um, more about Jane because um, uh, with that story about the authenticity, because um, th- this was a really intense part of the chapter because y- sh- you really get into her own words. Um, and, 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 I, and that makes it more real because you're not just telling the story from almost like a third person. Um, this is Jane speaking herself. And, you know, so it kind of gets really intense. Like, for example, um, she said, I all put together, I think I hit my lowest point of self-confidence. I can now see that it all went back to that time period of my life when I was compromised on my value of being authentic to myself. Before that, maybe I had more faith in myself. I can't remember that far back, but I think the cloud of guilt that settled on my heart then hasn't fully lifted. I'm sharing this now since there is a new chapter of my life beginning where I'm called to embrace my expression again and also the world of data. Maybe there is a deep-seated fear inside that I should do it right this time. I don't want to make the same mistakes again. I've been doing some forgiveness meditation to overcome this anxiety and fear that overtakes me at times. On the positive side, I now understand the power of staying true to the precepts. I didn't realize their value when I was young, but there's much truth to the fact that when one is looking to actualize from a place of one's being, there's no ethical shortcut allowed. I mean, that gets really intense because it's almost like the kind of dialogue, inner dialogue that we have within ourselves. It may not be um, in her exact case, but there are times in which we are trying to essentially go with what the crowd wants, the company wants, what our parents want, what others want. But there's something deep within us that is telling us to do the opposite. But, mm. but we go with the crowd, we go with the pressure, because we, it, it's almost like on some level, we're thinking, well, if so many people are saying that this is the right thing to do, then surely it is. Uh, perhaps I'm I'm completely wrong when that's not always mm. the case.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: It says, this remi- remarkable insight opened up because we had tested and rejected authenticity as our habit value, as already explained earlier. This kind of a history of trauma may not be that uncommon. We cannot be wholesome in our search for values while staying unwholesome in other aspects of our life. Ethics is a very important topic, so important, um, that I will point the reader toward the book that Jane mentioned, Ethics for the Real World. Um, did you wanna talk a little bit more about that book in particular?
1: Yeah, so Ethics for the Real World is a truly wonderful book. It's, it's written, it's, it's actually the essence of the work of my teacher, Ron Howard, who was also the founder of Decision Analysis. And Ron and his former student, Clint Corver they're both wonderful people they they got together and and yeah. Clint, Clint actually came back many years after finishing his phd in decision analysis and he felt that the ethics class that ron howard taught was perhaps the most practical thing he had learned at stanford university and so he came back to record classroom lectures well i was still a student actually i remember that and then he turned it into a book with ron and that book is the essence of the exploration of ethics and not from an intellectual perspective as such, it's more towards an engineer's view of ethics where you create an ethical code that you as an individual will live by. So I still carry the ethical code that I created in this class in my pocket all those years back. And there's things in it like, I won't keep secrets. Well, unless people take my permission first. So yes, I'll sign a contract, an NDA, But you got to make me sign that NDA. You can't assume. So as a result, people don't gossip with me because I'm not obliged to keep their secrets. Hey, do you know this thing about Julius? Let me tell you all about Julius. I'm like, well, you know what? Since you didn't take my permission, I'm going to tell him everything you said. (laughs) Right. So, so that so as things like this, and then other things like I won't steal and and so piracy is no. I'm not going to download. I will pay. I, I would like the artist to be. Well fed for entertaining me, and and that's just a principle. So these are there's a whole there's a whole lot to be said here, and I'll also point uh, the reader to another person whose work is very similar, Mary Gentile, and I think she, her work she calls it giving voice to values. It's it's a very similar conclusion that she's found. It's far more practical and useful to. Turn your ethical code into an actionable form that you're you're actually going to use it in your daily decisions. Then just sit in the classroom and judge other people's ethics. That's not very interesting or useful. So so the, yeah, that's the that's the call out here.
0: Awesome, and I will uh, I'll check it out myself. Actually, um, I haven't read that or either of those actually. Um, yeah, and so. You know, so a couple of things um, here, uh, 173, it says trauma of some kind, whether self-inflicted or inflicted by others, may sometimes be uncovered by listening for our deepest habit patterns. It can give us big clues that our real numinous values are getting hidden. Giving space to it without judgment allows us to work with it. And then going down a little more uh, to the last paragraph says over and over again, as people have entered this inquiry, I've been surprised to see how the habit value, when discovered, seems to be a powerful ally when connected to the heart value, a superpower. Getting this self-awareness about such intimate habit patterns is wonderful, for it allows us to understand the context in which we might unintentionally show up as a demon to others. And I I think that that's a nice uh, bow at the end of it all too, because it You know, again, talking about that example um, with Jane being in the shadows, um, again, I'm not assuming, but someone like Jane might look at someone else and be like, why is that person showing off? In her mind, that is almost like the demon. And then, but then that same person who's showing off or who's not showing off, it's something else, but they're more extroverted, for example, might look at Jane and be like, that's the demon. And it's like, Mm -hmm. neither are the demon. (laughs) It's just that, you know, each of them have something that, that each of them have a habit value, uh, that must be discovered. Each of them has a superpower that they are using, whether, uh, intentionally or unintentionally. And, um, we must do the work in order to make sure that we are affecting aspects of our life, um, around us so that we can be a little more joyful, a little less judgmental, uh, better listeners, and all of that. Um, did, is there anything else you wanted to say about the habit value before I dive into the questions for reflection?
1: I think, I think we've covered a good amount of ground. And this is one of the smaller chapters, but it is a profound discovery. And every time we found the habit, it brings so much lightness that, oh, we're going to use it as your superpower. And now we get into the creative conversation in the next chapter. How do we construct contexts where your habit is an asset and not a liability and towards delivering on your heart's value? So that's, that's the work of the next chapter and we are building the ground for it.
0: Excellent. Excellent. All right, and with that being said, I'm going to go into the questions for reflection. Number one, in your journaling practice or dialogue with trusted friends, what habit value is emergent for you? Number two, how was your experience of this inquiry from the lens of the principles or the tests? For each principle and test, write what emerged and use that to inquire deeper. Number three, how much guiding power does your habit value have? What alternatives emerge for you in decision situations when you bring that value front and center? Number four, what opens up for you when you think of using the habit value in service of the heart value? And number five, if your habit value is feeling more like systemic value, black and white construct, instead of an extrinsic value that's unique to you, how might you deepen your inquiry? and use your heart value to guide your inquiry of the habit value. With that being said, that concludes this chapter. Please join us next time for chapter six, The Head, Finding Your Crucible.